Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message from Real Life Community, where we talk about connecting with God and others, growing in Christ-likeness, and sharing God's life with the world. My name is Sarah Comer, and I serve each week as Connections Pastor, making sure that you know that there is a God and a community that loves you and wants to go through the seasons of life with you. You can find us at reallifecommunity.org, and we would love to meet you on Facebook or Instagram. Until then, we hope this message meets you right where you are and helps you know just how deep the Father's love is for you. Together as the church today, and um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate those who um, give of their time and talent uh, here at Real Life. Um, whether it's up here leading music, whether it's behind the, the sound booth on computers and serving, it is awesome to see us functioning together as the body of Christ. When I, when I think about what it means to be together as the church, I know above all else that what that means is that we are a people who have gathered together around a common narrative, a common story. And first and foremost, that, that narrative is this, the scriptures. But we also have a narrative here at Real Life. And if you're new to the church, we'd love to fill you in on what that's all about because it's a pretty cool story. Uh, that started about 18 years ago. And so it is awesome to be able to gather together, to hear the stories, to share life together. That's what it means to be the church. And in our day and age, uh, it is important to have a group of people that we know we can count on. So I'm glad you're here. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we are so excited that you're with us. You walk through the doors of a pretty amazing thing that's happening here in Murfreesboro and the surrounding community. So that's awesome. Um, Sierra mentioned alabaster. Uh, this is something that, uh, so Real Life is a, is a church of the Nazarene. Uh, we are part of a gathering of churches that are global. And one of the things we do uh, yearly is we receive this alabaster offering. And it, like she said, goes to help build ministry facilities all around the world, churches, hospitals, uh, child daycare centers, um, all of these with the express purpose of proclaiming the gospel. So, um, we want to encourage you just to gather your spare change this month. And on the last Sunday of the month, we're going to gather together. We're going to bring it all together. We've already been collecting stuff. People have been putting uh, extra offerings in, uh, in the weekly offering. So um, it's exciting. And I'll just tell you this. So if you, if you, hadn't, if you didn't know this, I grew up in, on the mission field in Hong Kong. And it is cool to know that even those churches that are built by Alabaster are also participating in Alabaster so that they can be a part of building other things. So it's cool just to see the cycle. It's awesome. So um, on that note, I do want to just take a moment uh, and just mention something that uh, oftentimes people in the church don't like pastors talking about, which is so funny because it's so important. Um, When it comes to who we are as a people of God, we are a people who give of our time, our talent, and our treasure, not because uh, we have to, not because there's an organization that has to keep the wheels rolling, but because we do that in response to what God has already done in our life. And this morning, we're going to look in on the passage of the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, What we do is in response to what Jesus did 
and what Jesus is continuing to do here among us uh, in, an, in our world. And so when, I, when we think about giving of our time, our talent, and our treasure, uh, hear me say this. It, this is not just about keeping this thing going. What we do when we give is we give back to God and say, God, you, you get to have the first of me, the first of my time, the first of my treasure, the first of my talent. Um, and one of the, the things that I, I find humorous at times is when people come to me and say, Pastor, I really would like to give something in the offering um, or I really would like to serve, but by the time Sunday hits, I just don't have anything left. I'm exhausted, I'm worn out, I just, my, my pocketbook is empty, the checking account is hardly anything. And, and I want to kindly say, well, you're going about it all the wrong way. It's not about giving God what's left over at the end of the week. It's about giving to God what you have at the beginning of the week. Um, and all of our weeks look differently, but the, the idea is this, we give back to God out of the first of our increase. And so um, I just wanted to give you an update of where we are as a church uh, financially. Our church year goes from the beginning of May to the end of April. That is our church year. And this year we have received from your faithful giving uh, $66,138.24. That comes in through the joy box in the back, through the joy baskets in the front, and online. and that is, it, it's awesome just to see the sacrificial giving of people. And we know that COVID has affected that. Our, some of us aren't making what we used to. Um, some of us aren't making anything like we used to. Um, and so we know that things are tight, but we also know that when we're not here together, it's just easy to forget about, oh, I'm a part of that. Um, but I just want to say thank you, church, and all of you who are watching online. Thank you for sending in your your contributions, your tithes, your offerings. Um, so that's what we received. But the, the, the next number is a little different. You know, we've spent $77,577. Now, if you're uh, financial at all, you recognize that that's a little bit of a problem because you can't keep uh, spending more than you give or th- than you receive, right? Um, in our culture, we would say, no, actually, you, you can do that. It's called credit. And we just do that. But in the church, we, we have a credit card that we use, but we pay that off every year, every month um, because we just don't like debt, um, which is why we would really like to pay off the mortgage on this building. Um, shameless plug right there. Um, so, but, but we just know that, um, you know, when income is less than expenses, uh, we have to start having some serious conversations, which is what we have started doing around here. Um, but that 11,000 difference from May to now, um, I believe is something that can go away and that we can actually turn, turn this around um, if we do uh, two things. One is this, we wanna be a people who pray. God, what would you have me do to participate in what you are doing in Murfreesboro and beyond? So we, we need to pray. And sometimes uh, God will say, I want you to do this. And you're like, well, God, that doesn't make sense. I don't have that. And he said, will you trust me with that? Will you trust me that what I've asked you to do, I will enable you to do? This isn't just a financial thing. This is 
This is just the heart of what it means to live with, with Christ. Um, it just so happens that finances is one of the best ways that we can tangibly do that. Um, we can trust God with our resources. So we are gonna be a people who are going to pray. And I just wanna ask you online, here in person, wherever you may be, those of you who will listen to this service later in the week, um, would you join us in praying about what God wants to do through us with the, the, the treasure that he's entrusted to us? It's called stewardship, where we take care of what God has entrusted to us. So we're gonna pray. The other thing is, I just want to encourage you as a church to remain and continue in your faithfulness in giving. Uh, here at Real Life, we just believe that when it comes to uh, funding the mission of God, we do that through one of two ways. One is, is what we call a tithe. It's a, it's a principle that is, um, is, it's ancient, really, where God says, give me the first of your increase. And the number that we usually use is the, the first 10%. Uh, for Christy and I, we have kind of written that into our budget, and we know that the first 10% of the paychecks that we get goes right back to God. Um, and so that's just a part of what we are. We don't even think about, well, that's a tight week. We're, we're not going to tithe this week. No, that never happens. Um, we, always, we always tithe because that's God's money, not our money. Uh, but then there's ways that we can give through offerings, like alabaster. That's on top of the tithe. Sometimes people give towards the building, uh, give towards children's ministry or youth ministry or, or some other, like the Hans deputation stuff. Those are offerings that we give on top of our tithes. Um, and so that's just a little snippet of, of kind of how we, we function as the church. And we'll give you some more information as the, as the weeks go along. But I just would like you to join me as a pastor and Christy and Sierra and our staff, I mean, and our leadership and that you would just recognize that you are a part of what God is doing here and um, that you would, would give of your time, your talent, and your treasure, okay? So thank you. All right, grab your Bibles. We're in Mark chapter 15. We are closing in on the end of the gospel of Mark. Um, and, oh, one other note. Let me just say this. So it's kind of funny. I am teaching right now a course online for Nazarene Bible College, Church Administration and Finance. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Um, and we've had some very interesting conversations. I've taught this course over and over and over again. And we always have just very interesting conversations about finances in the church. Um, one, usually, what, invariably, every, every session that I teach this, conversation comes up about ways that we can give creatively. Um, and there are ways that we can give creatively that people have, have done a long time. Um, and some of those ways are um, writing um, real life into your will, uh, writing real life into um, your retirement plans, uh, your insurance plans, your stocks and your bonds. And there's all sorts of ways to continue giving a, a long-time legacy gift to the church. And if, you are, if you're like, hey, I'd like to come up with a creative way to just fund what's going on here because we just believe in, in the ministry of real life, I'd love to have that conversation with you. And we can have some fun with that. All right, side note, sorry. Um, Mark chapter 15. Like I said, we are closing in on the end of Mark. Uh, there's only 16 chapters, and we are in the 15th chapter. 
Um, I'd like to read the word of God this morning, chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, grab those, read them there. I read out of the New Living Translation. Some people say, well, what kind of Bible does your church use? We use the Bible. Um, they're like, yeah, but what, what kind? I said, well, we're pretty generous in that area. And some of you have uh, NIVs, the New International Version. Some of you use King James, New King James, New Revised Standard Version, American Standard Version. There are all sorts of way, versions of this. We just want you to read one of them, okay? So Mark chapter 15, verse 21. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Side note, Jesus has been arrested. He has gone through a trial, a couple of them, and they're all farce of a trials um, because they're, they're trumped up charges and they have to pay people to lie. Um, but Jesus has left the final one and that was with Pilate. He is journeying with a cross on his shoulders to a place called Golgotha, which is where he would be put to death. And that's the scene that we jump into right here. He's walking down this path to Golgotha. Uh, some uh, some um, scholars believe that the distance from Pilate to Golgotha was about a thousand uh, meters. Uh, so it really wasn't a long distance, but when you've been beaten senseless, senseless your back has been ripped open uh, through the lashing of the whip um, and you have this burden on your shoulder, like the song talked about, the splinters in your shoulder, um, it can be tough. And that's why um, Simon gets uh, brought into this to carry the cross for Jesus. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Sounds like a place you want to have a picnic, right? Not. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Well then, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of the religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridicule him. This is the word of God for the people of God in the world. And we all say together, thank you, Jesus. Uh, let me be clear about something this morning. I, I wanna be clear about what we are talking about. We are talking about the part of the Jesus story from when he left Pilate's audience to the moment that he um, was hanging on a cross, stuck between two criminals. Um, when it says that they crucified him at nine o'clock, that does not mean that they killed him at nine o'clock in the morning. It means that they initiated the process of crucifixion. They nailed him to the cross. They raised that cross in the midst of that day that began at nine o'clock. And, and Jesus hung there for quite some time. 
Some of the gospels say put his death at around three o'clock in the afternoon. So he hung on that cross with nails in his hands and his feet, with a crown of thorns on his head, with people shouting at him and ridiculing him for six hours. That was um, unexpected. Crucifixion never really took that long. But Jesus, for some reason, lasted longer than was expected. Which is why, uh, as you can read in some other gospels, uh, the Romans figured, wow, he's been up there six hours. We need to speed this along. And they further uh, tortured him and broke his bones and stabbed him so that he would die quicker. It's an awful story. It really is. I mean, it's a story made for the movies. We, we've heard about the importance of Jesus dying for our sins. We've heard the importance of Jesus conquering death and rising from the dead. We, but is crucifixion merely an end or a means to the end? Is crucifixion simply just the method behind the madness? Why did Jesus have to die this way? And what does the crucifixion have to do with the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah? This morning, we're, really, we're not looking at the death and we're not looking at the resurrection. Although we can't read the passage of Scripture that we read without in our minds thinking about what's coming next. We know what's about to happen. We know that he's going to die. We know that he's going to be taken off of a cross. We know that he's going to be laid in a tomb. We know that he is going to vacate that tomb victorious, but they didn't know that at that point. They didn't realize that. We're talking about crucifixion this morning. We're talking about a death march. We're talking about people mocking Jesus. We're talking about criminals hanging on crosses on either side. We're talking about what appeared to be the ultimate, the ultimate collapse of everything that everyone had hoped for in Jesus. We're talking about unmet expectations. We're talking about that day, but we are also talking about what that day means for us today. What this means for you and I, for the person sitting next to you, for the people you've walked by this week, and the people you will walk by in the week ahead. It's what we're talking about this morning. Let's step into the events of the day. Jesus had, had eaten the Last Supper with his disciples. He'd gathered in that upper room. He'd had a meal. He'd, he'd shared communion with them. He had broken the bread and passed the cup, and they had done that. He, they left the meal, and he went to a garden where he prayed probably the most passionate and heartfelt prayers that have ever been prayed in all of recorded history. And then he was betrayed by one of his own and everyone, everyone deserted him. He was alone. After that, he went through the trials. He, he ended up at Pilate's uh, uh, palace and he was asked some very significant questions and Pilate gave him over to be crucified. All of these events are often referred to as the passion of Christ, and I understand why. Maybe you do too. As I have read these narratives over the years, I'm continually brought back time and time again to all of the emotions that have been wrapped up 
in that event. All of the emotions wrapped up in betrayal and, and scourging and, and being beaten and being mocked and, and looking out in the faces of the people that you had, you had healed and people whose lives had been transformed only to see rejection. I, 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 I'm caught up in those emotions because I know how I would have felt that day. I, I can only imagine what Jesus was going through in his heart and in his mind. Sure, he was fully God. And we might say, well, he was God. He could get over that. But to believe correctly is to state that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. Everything about Jesus identifies with what we know about what it means to be human, except for the fact that Jesus was able to get it right. He was able to depend on the Father in such a way that he never, even though he was tempted, he, was, he never succumbed to temptation. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. Were he not fully human, this whole narrative would have been about God dressing up like a human, playing the part of a human, just so he could pull the wool over Satan's eyes and dupe him into believing that he had won. But that's not what happened. Jesus was fully God and fully human. Jesus was fully present in the events that we speak of. Put yourself in the sandals of, of Jesus and it probably won't take much for you to realize all that's going on in his heart and in his mind. To say that Jesus was righteous is an understatement. He was fully God. To say that Jesus suffered is a huge understatement. None of us know what it means to suffer the way Jesus did. One of my professors that I had at seminary refers to Jesus as the righteous sufferer. Jesus, the righteous sufferer. In the midst of all that that means, let me just boil it down to this. Because of the righteous sufferer, we understand that God knows what it means to suffer. God knows what it means to hurt, to long, to be betrayed, to feel lonely. Jesus understands what it means to suffer. But you see, that's not the end of the story. You see, that is not the end of the good news. The good news is this. Not only does he know what it means to suffer, he knows what, he, what to do about suffering. It's not the end of the story for him. Jesus, in the midst of his agony, knew in some way, shape, or form, God was going to be faithful to what God has always said and was going to bring him through this. But Jesus was convinced that that may not be pulling him off the cross before he died. Much like Abraham, when God called him to sacrifice his only son, Hebrews talks about that Abraham said, raised that, that, that knife above his son and, and gave his son to God, not expecting God to, to hold his hand back. Abraham was willing to do whatever it took to pay the price that God had demanded. Jesus, in the same way, and I wonder for you and I, are we willing 
to go the distance with God, no matter what it is that God has called us to. That is tough. In Jesus, we see the fulfillment of so much that had been prophesied over the centuries leading up to his death. The people of the day may have wondered if Jesus was the one the Old Testament was pointing to, but all of that would have been called into question when all of a sudden their, their hopes were now hanging on a cross, dying a criminal's death. I, I, I'm guessing a few people thought, man, we backed the wrong guy. We, we bought into the lies. All that we had hoped for is now hanging on a cross. We, we would like to think that we can read the signs of the time. We'd like to think that we can figure it all out if we just put our head to it. But throughout history, the only time when, 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 the only time when we have been able to figure it all out has always been after the fact. When we look back on a situation and think, oh, that's what God was saying. Now I get it. We'd like to come up with the skills and the, the wisdom and the, the ability to figure it out beforehand. But I don't think that God's wanting us to figure it out beforehand. I think God is wanting us to trust him beforehand. And some people have said, well, um, how can I trust God? How can I know that God is gonna come through? I think we can say that we know God is going to come through because of all the times that God has come through. Look at the track record of God. God has always been there in the midst of the thick and thin. If we were to go around this room and share the stories, like Jordan talked about, of these stones that stood for things that God had done in someone's life, we would have a wall of stones here because God has been faithful over and over and over and over again. Jesus chose the path of crucifixion to deal the death blow to the death, decay, instruction of life. The good news is that Jesus did for us what no one of us could do on our own. Jesus secured transformation for this life and the life ahead. Let me say a word about what crucifixion cost Jesus. Jesus was offered wine that had been uh, laced with myrrh. Some say that this was done to mock Jesus. Um, Others believe that this was offered to him to dull his pain. It was a sympathy offering. But he refused the wine. Jesus refused the wine. Um, he wanted to be fully present in the moment of his sacrifice. He knew that a sacrifice would cost him and he was willing to pay the price. This was much like King David who was looking for a plot of land in which to build a temple. And he found one and the landowner said, I want to give this to you so that you might be able to do the thing that God has called you to do right here on this land. I want to give this. And David says, no, I, 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 won't, I won't take that from you because I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. What, what if that were to become our motto in life? I am not going to offer God anything that does not cost me something. I wonder, is what you are offering God costing you something? 
And are you quite willing to pay that price? Our hesitancy and refusal distinguishes us from the God who was and is and always will be willing to pay the price for all that separates you from him. God is willing to do whatever it takes to bring you back. In the crucifixion, we catch a glimpse of the life we are offered. It's not a life of separation from God. It is a life of intimacy and communion and dependence with God that makes sense of every other area of our life. In Jesus on a cross, we see the Son of God dependent upon God. Because remember the prayer in the garden? Not my will, but your will. That's what Jesus prayed. And I wonder if that were to be our prayer, along with the, the motto that we've just said, we're not going to give God the, the, something that doesn't cost us something. What if our ultimate prayer was this, not my will, but your will, God? What if that was the mark of surrender in our life? What, was the, what if that was the pattern of how we lived our lives? Not my will, but your, I just want your will in my life, God. I want you to move in me. I want your Holy Spirit to, to move in me. And God, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Do you realize what your salvation cost? It cost God everything. And as hard as we may think it was, God was willing to pay everything to have you back in the relationship you were created to have. The salvation you are being offered, the salvation secured on the crucifixion cross offers new life for every area of your life, including the ugliest shadows and the most powerful moments of rejection and despair. Jesus went through it all so that you might find hope in the Jesus way of life. Um, as we were singing one of the songs this morning, I said, we, I said to myself, um, or maybe God was telling me we needed to sing a song again. I'm gonna ask the team to come up and close us with that second song we sing. Having read scripture, having heard a little bit about what was going on in the crucifixion, I, I want us to sing this song thinking about what it means for us to be a people shaped and formed by the good news of the crucifixion. That sounds really weird. But this morning, Jesus is right here in the midst of us as he was right in the midst of those two criminals. Is Jesus in the middle of your life transforming you moment by moment? What is the driving force in your life today? Church, I want you to stand with me. And as we sing this song, which is all about the crucifixion, I want us to do some business with God. And I want us to ask God, God, is there anything in my life that I need to crucify? I need to put to death that you might have more life in me. Is there anything I need to deal with? Some of us might say, well, I, 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 there's a whole lot. But ultimately, I know that I've never asked Jesus to be Lord of my life. And today I want to do that. This morning, as we respond with this song, as we sing these words, I want to encourage you to, to, to respond in a couple other ways. Maybe you want to come to these padded cushions we have down here in front of the platform. And I want, maybe you, maybe you want to lay, lay, the, lay something down before God and say, God, take this. Maybe you want to come forward and say, God, I, I don't quite understand how I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. But God, I'm stepping out to say, I need you.
this morning, maybe you want to bring something to the joy baskets. Maybe that's your offering today. But can I just say this? Respond today in worship in some way, shape, or form. Respond to the God who said, I'm willing to crawl up on a cross for you. This morning, let's respond to God with a resounding, worshipful yes. Amen?